Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Дамы и господа, добро пожаловать в Prevail. Это второй сезон нашей борьбы с криминальными сволочами. Ваш ведущий Грег Олиан. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. For 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com slash Greg. Start living a better life today. We've got a great show. Pam Murtaugh is here. She is a, or was for many years, a management consultant in market research, which sounds like something that none of us really understand what it is that she did. What she did is she conducted focus groups. She doesn't call them focus groups, but they're what you and I outside the biz would think of as focus groups all around the world, trying to get people, customers, potential customers for whoever hired her to share what it was basically that made them tick. And she really looked to go above and beyond the usual kind of thing that people look for and really understand the human psyche. What she found is that feelings, emotions are what drive human behavior more than anything else, more than brand or the taste of whatever it was she was offering. She worked a lot with uh, candy bar companies and even invented a candy bar. She's the only one of my guests that I'm aware of who's invented a candy bar. So kudos. That's the one she invented. Granola chocolate. Pretty good. Anyway, she wrote this. It's not even a book yet. It's, it's part of a book and a proposal, I guess you would call it, called The Big Why about what she found and what she thinks is happening societally since 1980, which is that there is a not even a war that goes on between the left and the right hemispheres of our collective brain, but a coup. Like the left brain, which is the part of the brain that does all the, the numbers and the math and the basically executive stuff, took over from the right brain. The right brain, which is silent but has all the big ideas. And... That's what we're suffering through right now. Uh, it's a big concept, and there's a lot of interesting ideas in what she shared with me. 
And I'm like, you really should come on the show and talk about this because I think my listeners will really enjoy it. I want to talk about it. It's a different way of looking at what's going on in the world right now. And I think it's really valuable and interesting. So we're going to be talking to her later on in the show. A couple of announcements up front. This is the finale. This is the season three finale of the Prevail podcast. I will be back on September, I think it's the 9th, which is the Friday after Labor Day, taking three weeks off, recharge the batteries. But this is the 70th episode. I did 25 the first season, 25 the second season, and I did 20 in this season, slacking off a little bit. But I think 20 is probably more manageable for me going forward. So yeah, this is the finale. So we've got we've got some special stuff in the finale. We've got like I said, we have this kind of more esoteric conversation, uh, more right brain conversation, frankly, than what we what we usually get into here. So that's kind of fun. And if you stick around till after Pam's interview, I have a little special treat for you at the end of the show. I hope it's a treat. It's supposed to be a treat. Maybe if you, if you don't want to hear me sing again, just you know, turn it off after after the interview's over. I want to thank everybody that subscribes to my Substack. I don't go on this show really ever and ask people to, I don't have a Patreon. I don't do that. But if you want to support what I'm doing here, go to my Substack, which is just gregoliar.substack.com and subscribe. Costs $5 a month, $50 for the year. You decide. And it helps me keep the lights on and, you know, get this thing going every week for you. I don't like to, you know, come around hat in hand here, but uh, it's kind of like a tip jar. That's the way I look at it. My wife used to do shows all the time in the city, and at the end of the set, they would pass around usually an empty beer pitcher, which was a tip jar, and people would put, you know, some money into the jar. So basically, the Substack subscription is $5 a month. It's like buying me a beer every month. So if you'd like to do that, I would be very grateful. Um, if you don't, that's fine. I won't hold it against you. I don't mind. I don't, I don't, I don't have like a master list that I check and I'm like, that guy's a jerk because he doesn't, I don't do that. I do have a master list because it sends me stats, but I never like look at it in that way. Anyway, but if you can, please do. It would be greatly appreciated. What a week, huh? <laughs> this is, uh, this is one for the books this week. It started with, well, it started with the, the story about Trump flushing shit down the toilet, like, you know papers that he'd written on that archivists had to go into the toilet and reassemble, which is gross. That's part of it. There was the thing about how he um, complained to his generals that they weren't more like Hitler's generals, which is really stupid because I, is Trump unaware that Hitler lost the war? I mean, I don't think he knows. It's kind of crazy. Rommel, who was the head general guy for Hitler on D-Day, okay, um, was so duped by what the allies did that he was in Berlin at some bullshit meeting that Hitler had convened instead of like, you know, defending France there. And after the invasion at Normandy, it wasn't safe to fly. So Rommel had to drive from Berlin, which is pretty far east, all the way to like Normandy on the day of the invasion because he had to go to this fucking meeting that his idiot Hitler sent him to, right? Anyway, if you're ever like at work and think, man, I really screwed this up. Let me tell you, nothing ever in the history of screwing up a job can compete with Rommel having to drive from Berlin to Normandy because he missed, whoops, the D-Day invasion. Haha. <laughs> anyway, these are the generals that Trump seems to have wanted, which is cuckoo. But we're also accustomed to the crazy shit he says that that barely made a dent. And then 
Trump himself released the statement that, oh yeah, the FBI raided, that was his word, raided uh, Mar-a-Lago, looking for evidence. So further details have trickled out about this, but my God, I mean, I know that the Republicans have all gone crazy. Oh, the FBI's never raided the uh, residence of a former president. Of course they haven't, because one of the, <laughs> there's never been a criminal former president before. It was never necessary. And, you know, I've Merrick Garland is, say what you will about him, and I've said plenty, he's not corrupt. I mean, he's doing everything by the book. If he signed off on this, if Chris Ray, who is Trump's choice to replace Comey, who he fired for investigating him at the FBI, if, if Chris Ray, who is no squeaky clean guy in my opinion, if he signed off on it, I mean, you know, there's stuff there that Trump shouldn't have been doing. And then, then... After complaining about this, he goes, Trump does, to his deposition in New York, where Tish James is actually there, the attorney general, our attorney general here in the great state of New York, and just takes the fifth for all the questions. He's there for hours taking the fifth. You know who takes the fifth? Oh, let me have Trump himself explain who takes the fifth. Her staffers taking the Fifth Amendment. How about that? And her ringleaders getting immunity is now just people taking the Fifth Amendment. Four people plus the guy who illegally did the server. You know, he put it in the illegal server. So there are five people taking the Fifth Amendment, like you see on the mob, right? You see the mob takes the Fifth. If you're innocent, why are you taking the Fifth Amendment? Yeah, so that's who takes the Fifth. It's like a mob thing, like Trump said, right? Anyway, it's all crazy. I'm going on vacation, which means it's only going to get crazier. <laughs> I don't know, guys. I mean, you know, maybe it'll be really great. Also, the the DOJ, I think, has to stop doing things before the election cycle. So they're really ramping up. If they're going to go by the letter of the law with that, which isn't a law, it's just a courtesy almost. You know, it, it could get very, very busy in the next month, let's say. So, you know, exciting times that we live in. I am... Hopeful, as I always am. I'm not going to be excited until people are indicted, frankly. But it was it, this was a pretty good week. Let's not uh, let's let's not look the old gift horse in the mouth here. It was a good week, and I'm happy that uh, finally, finally, it looks like there's going to be some consequences for Trump's bad criminal behavior. Yeah. All right. Enough prattle from me. I will see you. Tonight on the 5-8, but after tonight on the 5-8, I will see you in three weeks' time. And I hope that you join me in three weeks. And I hope everybody has a lovely rest of the summer, a great Labor Day, and we go into the fall ready to, uh, oh, prevail. We'll be right back with Pam Murtaugh. They took it all. The logs of congressmen I'd call Flynn and Rudy caught on audio Raiders of Mar-a-Lago They took it all Wet pages from the bathroom stall Green Bay Sweep with Peter Navarro FBI Mar-a-Lago Now they have it all They have it all My good wig and the 
Satan Moscow, Raiders of Mar-a-Lago. Pam Murtaugh, welcome to the Braille Podcast. Hey, Greg, it's, I'm glad to be here. I'm excited to have you on. Now, this is a this is a different kind of show because you have, I guess, the seeds of this book that you've been working on for a long time, and the ideas in it are really, really fascinating. So I wanted to bring you on to talk about the ideas in the book and also your background, which is super interesting. So let's start there. You worked for a long time in marketing in a very specific niche world of marketing. So Tell everybody, you know, who you are and what exactly you were doing for, for all that. It's pretty interesting. Well, for, for 30 years, I've worked in the corporate world trying to understand why people do what they do. And then I learned that, that the question really was, why do people do what they do when they do it? And so I, I worked my way up from discovering that marketing research didn't expect to find causes. And I'm like, what are we doing this for if we're not finding causes? So I had to invent a kind of research that would get us down to the why people do what they do when they do it. And so, so it was tricky because I was, uh, I was on my own inventing, which is what I primarily do, and, and going into dark rooms with, with four people to ask them questions they've never been asked before, and just kind of bumped along learning, okay, if that's true, is this true? If that's true, is this true? Why is that true and how can that possibly be true? So there were layers and layers of learning. And it was always a one-shot deal. I mean, you know, you never get to go back and do the same thing twice. So I had to learn how to build from the, the infrastructure of people responding to. Me. And that's a completely different lesson from what did we learn about the brand of the product and what does that mean that we should do? I learned that it's all about the people and the brands and the products are always secondary but that's not who paid the bills. <laughs> so I had to make sure the bills got paid and that everybody learned what they wanted about the product itself or the brand itself. And uh, so that was my pathway for 30 years. Small, small rooms all around the world, learning from people by asking them questions like, if this, was, if this flavor was a kind of wind, what kind of wind would it be? And clients would always say, consumers won't be able to do that. And what I learned is what they meant was I couldn't do. And consumers are first and foremost people. And people are, are extraordinarily human about themselves if you give them a chance. Where people that have been trained in our MBA higher education system are in fact less human. They are more cognitively driven by training and get farther and farther away from who they are. They're like half corporation. There's somebody like that Mitt Romney would hang out with. Yes. Uh, on the spectrum of human to corporation, they're, they're, they're farther <laughs> along. Yes. Okay. Yes. Now, there's a lot of talk in, your, in, in what you've written about candy and candy bars, and you invented a candy bar, right? I, I did, although at the time it would have been sacrilege to call it a candy bar. Kudos granola snack. I'm the, I'm the mother of kudos granola snack. And... So, okay, so kudos to you, as they say. <laughs> But you, you write a lot in the book, too, about, about Snickers and about Cadbury. And there's one passage where you talk about how Cadbury is different in the United States than it is in the UK. And it absolutely is. 
and it, it came into the news a couple of years ago because uh, they wanted to block UK Cadbury from, from being sold in the US because UK Cadbury and US Cadbury are fundamentally two different creatures. Um, UK can, Cadbury follows the chocolate tradition in the, in the UK and Britain for being having these very warm cooked milk notes. And it's sort of like if you smell the pot of milk before you're going to make hot chocolate, okay. that's the, the cooked milk flavor and essence. And, and they combine that with very small particle size um, milling so that the, the basis of the chocolate itself is quite sticky. So it gets in your mouth and it will not rush. You cannot speed it up by chewing because it's adhesive and it sticks and it doesn't want to go anywhere fast. And what that does to you is slow you down. So, but U.S. Cadbury was invented and not invented so much as optimized for this marketplace, which is all about sweetness. And we're kind of preternaturally up. And, and so there's, there's more sugar, there's bigger sugar, the particle sizes are bigger. So you can, in fact, eat chocolate and make it go faster. It's nothing's going to slow you down with U.S. chocolate. And, and if you look at the ingredient declarations on each of them, there's a small difference, but a big difference. In U.K. Cadbury, milk is the first ingredient. And in U.S. Cadbury, sugar is the first ingredient. And that's true of, of all the products and brands that are out there. Small differences make big difference. So these two chocolates are fundamentally different while having essentially the same label. This is fascinating to me because first of all, something I'd never thought about before. Like it's just, and that and that's what you're getting at when you're going into these, uh, these focus groups, you're trying to ar get people to articulate yes. the very subtle differences in, in these things and getting, you know, and trying to figure out why they like the British Cadbury more than the American or vice versa. I think it's that, you know, that's very telling because here in America, we're just all basically Homer Simpson stuffing our face as quickly as possible. <laughs> I, you know, I like Hershey bars and uh, I just like to just eat, eat them. You know, I like yes. to just grab a handful of M&Ms and jam it in my, my maw <laughs> and, and chomp down. And when it's done, I keep going, you know, um, well, so does, so does everybody. <laughs> and the challenge that we had to we had to stop calling what I do focus groups because the first thing I do is only have four people and I turn out the lights so that there's um, I automatically change the mood in the room and I can never ask people why or what do you think because if you ask people what they think they'll go right to their head but I have to misdirect them I have to take them so the example of if if this flavor were a kind of wind. Uh, it's kind of tacking in a sailboat, I think, uh, where you head one direction to get somewhere else. But if you ask the question wrong, their first response is, I like it because. And I like it because is always wrong because it just doesn't matter. Um, liking and magic are two different things. And I was blessed in a sense to have come up in the world of confection because Oh, I'm trying to remember. There's a piece of research that we did early on before I understood that all these focus groups that we were doing weren't helping me. And I was supposed to design the product because they kept asking about liking. And I, then I finally was I mean, as unattuned as I was to everything that was happening because I had no training in that side of it. I said, it's got chocolate on it. They're going to like it. 
And so what I fundamentally found was the difference between liking and magic when I was able to reduce the experience of a granola bar to, I ended up in a dark room for 24 hours by myself after I learned to say, none of what we're doing is helping me. And if this is my job to do it, then I guess I'm going to have to figure it out. So what I figured out was teeth sinking through means chocolate, wham, big bumps means good for you. So if, if as a chocolate company moving into the granola business, we wanted to make the most out of our chocolate experience or confection experience, I had to put a cream layer, teeth sinking through, on top of a low, dense, low density big bump granola so that you could get two messages in one, ooh, good for me, ooh, good for me. And in, the, and in the end, that's exactly how the messaging worked. And the first time we took those designs out, there was silence in the room. They would, take, they would take a bite, they would look at it, and they would say, what is this? Wow. It's like, all right, this is a fundamentally, I don't think I like it response. This is a genuine magic response. I like it because, no, I'm kidding. Everyone out of the focus group groove, clients and respondents alike and had to get them to trust me enough to come with me to this place where they certainly felt wholly uncomfortable. And the people in the back of the window were like, when are we gonna talk about the product and brand? And I'm like, none of, none of what they say about the product and brand is gonna matter until we get everything else around it and how the whole thing works. So, so I was kind of a fly in the ointment everywhere I went. And and luckily was successful enough that, that there would be a next time and a next time and a next time because I would obsess the whole time between the end of one project and the beginning of the next to figure out, well, what did I actually learn? What does that mean? What do I do? How can that be? And, and I, had a, I had a boss. I used to do R&D for the founder of Cuisinart, whose motto was obsession is the mother of success. And... So I was obsessed and I, I didn't sign up for that, but that's, that's been my path to, to follow. How can that possibly be true with a series of questions that ex can expand someone's ability to tell you how that can possibly be true? See, it's almost like you're, you're taking an artistic look at something that generally is not considered artistic at all. You know, it's, it's almost like you're using a different side of your brain. That see what we're doing there. This is foreshadowing. <laughs> we're foreshadowing. Um, <laughs> getting back to the Cadbury thing, the idea of that again that the British one makes you slow down and sort of forces you to slow down. Yes. And enjoy it, right? Well, enjoying it, of course, is getting the feeling you want to feel. Enjoyment is well, one of those umbrella words that that doesn't mean anything. I was in a panel in in Lyon, France, I don't know, 10 years ago, something like that, when my book, my first novel came out in France, in French, and I was on book tour. And uh, this is by far the coolest thing that ever happened to me in my life. I'm going to France and on in, a book tour. is And in Lyon, cool. hey. Yeah, yeah. There was a, a festival there and I was on some panel and we were talking about, I can't even remember what the, what the exact topic was, but one of the French novelists said... Uh, that the novel, even though it's sort of a marginalized art form, is still powerful because it has the ability to control time or to to affect mm -hmm. time, right? Because mm -hmm. you know, if you if you watch a movie 
and it's a two-hour movie, you're spending two hours watching the movie. You might pause it to go to the bathroom or something, but the, the movie itself is two hours long and, and that's it. You're listening to a song, it's three and a half minutes or whatever. Everything else has this clock that's sort of inherently built into it. Mm -hmm. Whereas you're reading the novel and you might want to read it faster than the author wants you to, but there's some yeah. novels that you just, because of the way they're written, you have to slow down. And the novelist has that ability to slow everything down and, and control time. Um, and I thought that was interesting, especially in light of now in this day and age with social media and especially Twitter, which I'm on all the time has affected my own brain's ability to, to think and how I process information. And I'm constantly just grabbing things from across the spectrum, like, you know, the, the cartoon of the plates falling and the guy, you know, frantically trying to catch them. You know, when you're reading a novel or eating this delicious uh, British Cadbury chocolate bar, that's not the case. You can't do that. You are forced to take your t more time yes. than you maybe would want. And it, it snaps you out of something. So that's basically your background as a, as a professional um, marketing person. What, what title do you give yourself? What, what is your title? A management consultant, because half of the work is figuring out how people are involved in the business. And the other half is then what to do as a business. Yeah. So the way that the brain operates now, I think, is different than it was 50 years ago, 100 years ago. It just is because we're Even 10 years ago. Even, Even 10, years. 10 years ago. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And this kind of gets into the topic of your book, which I want to get into. Again, you make the point a couple of times in 1980, which is when Reagan takes over, yeah. income inequality starts to become a problem, as you point out. Also, yeah. obesity starts to become a problem, as you point yeah. out. And of all the years, it's the same time period. So are these things related? How do they relate? And you, you you sort of had these ideas floating around, and then you read this book by Ian McGilchrist called The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World. So talk about that a little bit, about your, your process and, and, and these ideas that you've been kicking around. To your point of, it's as if I was using a different part of my brain. That's that's true when, when someone says, I think I like, or, but the right hemisphere is the one that's actually responding to all of these sensory experiences. But the right hemisphere is silent. So I didn't know that until McGilchrist's book, I didn't know that I was coming face to face with the right hemisphere. I didn't know that people were showing me what their right, how their right hemisphere processed the world. And, and that's part of my obsessive trail of how can this possibly be true? That for a long time I held to, um, it's Paul, now I'm going to say his name wrong. Klugman, Krugman. Yeah, Paul. I think it's Krugman. Yeah. Krugman. Uh, it's Krugman who pinpointed 1980 as the beginning of income inequality. And, and there was a widespread, uh, especially in the late 20,000s, there was a widespread awareness um, that obesity began in 1980. And so, of course, that comes into me as, as data. And, and I'm like, well, if, if that's true, what the hell does that mean? And how can that possibly be? And, and so those, those different things were just floating around in my head until McGilchrist came along and said, it's the brain. And I was like, well, silly me, because reading his book, it, it was as if he and I had been in a parallel universe for 25 years. 
there were things that he wrote that I had learned to say to people, like um, in there's a big consulting gimmick in marketing consulting called white space that you want to learn where there's white space so you can develop a new product. Well, by the way, if you learn where there's white space, there's nothing there. So there's not, there's no reason for you to invent a new product for white space. But what I learned from someone in publishing is that there's actually more white space in between the print on the page than there is around the edge. Hmm. So McGilchrist pointed out a bunch of things that, that I was like, well, I, I know that. And, you know, small differences make big differences. I know that. And so there was this whole sequence, this, uh, sequence of, well, I, right, I experience that all the time. And so the, the secret title, the meaning of his book is that it's the unmaking of the Western world, that we're in the midst of having this go sideways, but no one's paying attention to it. And, I, and so I gradually started to put together the pieces of obesity with the piece of income inequality, with the unmaking of the Western world, plus the fact that this, this UK chocolate experience is meaningful because it gives us feelings that we seek. So you're not going to put a UK Cadbury chocolate bar that slows you down in your mouth by accident when you, in fact, want to speed up. You don't have that conversation in your head. You don't say, well, I really want to speed up. I don't want to slow down. You just have the awareness of feelings on an unconscious level. And you act accordingly, like you pulling out your book from the shelf today. Oh, I could ask you a dozen questions about that, and it would only take six to figure it out. Why did you pull that book off the shelf today or whenever it was that you wrote that particular piece? Right. Because no, no one does anything unmotivated. The question is, where does the motivation come So income inequality re has recreated the world around us so that we're, we're working more, we have less time, we're making less money. That is a drumbeat, income inequality. Working more, having less time, making less money. At the same time, obesity was happening. Well, obesity is the physical, physiological response to consuming more than your body needs. But consuming more is, is namely consuming feelings. We're outsourcing feelings to consumption because we have less time. We're outsourcing feelings to consumption because we have less time to be connected to ourselves. And so I started to naturally then follow the coming together of those things. And, and be obsessed about how there was no discussion about income inequality was born in 1980. The obesity epidemic was born in 1980. And it, it's also a brain story because the left hemisphere is all about linearity, logic, and language. So the left, left hemisphere's response to income inequality is bad eating. You have to fix your bad eating. The right hemisphere has a response of, don't worry, we'll just take care of it. Um, meaning you're gonna get the feelings, you're not gonna go without the feelings. So the idea of a diet is threatening to take away feelings that you need to function on a, on a functional basis, um, day in and day out, or morning in or morning out. I mean, imagine if you have a favorite coffee mug and it's chipped one morning, what do you do then? there's a not negligible response to that as you go through your day because it didn't start exactly the way you feel it should start. Did that make sense? Yeah, because I have a coffee mug that I use every day. And occasionally 
I won't run the dishwasher and I have to use the secondary one, which it, 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 it screws up the mix of milk and coffee and it, the, the whole the whole system goes out of whack. Exactly. And, and it's a feeling system. Yes. It's nothing other than a feeling system. Yeah. And so and so that's um, so from McGilchrist, I learned to understand how the well, the brain is built as a team with these two hemispheres. I, I think of them as fraternal, fraternal conjoined twins because they are joined, but they're totally different. The right hemisphere is silent. The left hemisphere is noisy. The right hemisphere has all the big things, infinity, faith, love, history, authenticity. The left hemisphere is system, system, system. This is how it gets done. But they need each other. The right hemisphere needs a talking hemisphere that can put things into language, linearity, and lo with logic. And the left, left hemisphere needs the right hemisphere because it shovels over this language. The result, the outcome from language, linearity, and logic gets shoveled over to the right hemisphere that curates it, that finds its place in our being, that discards what we don't need and holds on to what we do need and creates wisdom for the next time. And so McGilchrist taught me about this fundamental brain interplay and each hemisphere needs each other, but no hemisphere is needier than the right hemisphere, which is stone silent. The left hemisphere, however, where money also is, since 1980 has figured out the world's its oyster. The answer to everything is a number. Not only is the answer to everything a number, it's a dollar sign. And with language, linearity, linearity and logic, plug that into technology, and the, and the left hemisphere starts running around going, I'm it. I am the only brain you need. I am the only brain you should use. And I will create disincentives if you use, if you use the other brain. And organically, the right hemisphere is, de is designed to lead. Uh, there's what I call prehavior. All of these things that I've learned about happen at moments in time. But in every moment of time, there's a moment of prehavior when you're apprehending the cues around you. It could be the weather, it could be the sunlight, it could be the noise, it could be your relationship to stress or what you have to be doing or what's just behind you or what's in front of you. So there's this prehavior, this prehension of what you apprehend. And then as you apprehend it, your feelings get engaged and then it moves over to the left hemisphere. So the right hemisphere is, is built for leadership. The left hemisphere is built for management. In 1980, using, uh, using n-grams, uh, Google n-grams, I did a lot of, have done a lot of language tracing. 1980 is an inflection point for a lot of language, including management and leadership. That leadership goes out of the way because leadership is a right hemisphere thing. Leadership is how you inspire people to follow you and do X, Y, and Z according to whatever metrics of success. Management is, here's the number you need to achieve, figure out how to achieve that. And don't go off the reservation because then you might do something I don't understand uh, while you're trying to get an answer. And all I care about is the number. And, and in, the, in the end of my time um, in business, I involuntarily retired because of health issues. But at the end of my time in business, senior management was getting more and more allergic to having me around. We don't want to think like you. We don't want to have a framework like this. We don't want to think like that. 
we don't want to. And it was there, it started to be that there was always one corporate marketing guy or corporate HR guy in the room to say out loud, we don't want to think like this. We don't want it. We don't want to hear this. We don't. And until I, I physically, I just couldn't for 30 years, I'd had the ability to, to, I have a degree in elementary, elementary education. For 30 years, I figured out a way to find that one person in the room, put my hand on their head and hold on to them while I took 29 other people with me um, to learning that they needed to learn. There was always a, a wonderful conversion of people in the room who, when they would understand, oh my God, she's explaining the world. She's not just telling us this one small thing. She's explaining the world and that explains the small thing. And so that was, so those are the people that I won over. But the, but the world was getting to be a more and more difficult place for somebody who went off the reservation. And that's me. <laughs> we'll be right back with Pam Murtaugh. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. How well would you take care of your car if you had to keep the same one your entire life? Well, that's how our brains work. So why don't we treat them that way? And, you know, if our brains are cars, to can just keep this analogy rolling along the highway here, we're basically in an action movie getting, like, pelted by stuff right now. What with all the news going on in the world and all the really bad, scary things and the trauma that we all experience just by dint of being alive in 2022. Now, there's plenty of ways to support a healthy brain. You could learn a new language. You can take power naps, which I'm going to take one myself in a minute. But there's also... BetterHelp Online Therapy. You know, I've used BetterHelp myself. I went to the website. I found an excellent therapist who really helped me. I'm not even reading this off a of paper. I really did. And it, I, I used my own promo code and it really did help me. Now, BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat only therapy sessions. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy. And the best part is you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours, just really fast. And sometimes, you know, you want to see a therapist. You want to see one as soon as possible. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com Greg. That's BetterHelp.com slash Greg, G-R-E-G. BetterHelp. Start living a better life today. You know, what you described that that the way that businesses sort of drifted into this realm. It's also about like the stock prices and always having the stock price be the, you know, and the shareholder thing be the most important thing at the expense of every, anything and everything else, you know, just worrying about quarterly reports at the expense of anything else. And, and just thinking in a very short term quarterly to quarterly kind of way rather than saying, you know, hey, we can we can do X, Y, and Z, but it's going to, we might make less money uh, for the next two quarters, but we'll make more next year if we do this. I think businesses yes. are much more reluctant to do stuff like that. And yes. in, a, in a big picture way, we're seeing it with all the, uh, the climate change stuff and, and the inability and, and the extreme reluctance of companies, governments, people in general to embrace uh, green technology, to cling to, you know, fossil fuels, which we know are going to destroy the planet. Right. Um, 
soon. Well, and you know, and and that relates to oil prices right now. I mean, yeah. this is the oil oil companies are down on their knees thanking the god of oil to say thank you for all this profit because they priced out everything down to the last drop in the ground. Yeah, and they they think the last drop in the ground is already in their bank. And so anything that screws with their ability to go from here to the last drop in the ground is a loss. And now here's the surprise windfall of quote unquote inflation and would be there saved. Yeah. I mean, for now, some of the financing, as I understand it with these oil companies is really suspect anyway, because they they sort of equate their value, their shareholder value, based on what they think the reserves are underground, which may or may not even be true. I don't know. The whole thing right. is is smoke and mirrors, but it it's it's a perfect industry for people that are only thinking three months ahead. <laughs> you know. Oh yeah. If I can get through this quarter to the next quarter, it's fine. Um, when you talked about the right brain and the left brain, it made me think of, and the right brain being silent, it made me think of a, of basketball players, and. Um, you know, the, the right brain sort of the big man that's like underneath the basket, but needs somebody to pass him the ball in a sense. Right. Whereas the left brain is the point guard who handles the ball a lot, creates, but ultimately isn't as good as, as the big man in the grand scheme of things. So, you know, but even basketball has drifted further and further from the basket. So another thing that I read in your your book is the the idea of the reptile brain versus the non-reptile brain. And I think you said something like, it doesn't go up and down like that. It goes left and right, right? Right. It's, 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 yeah. a, different, it's a different polarity. Explain that a little bit. What do you mean by that? Well, the, the default has been to believe that there's the, the executive function, that, that's all that matters. This is the belief system. The executive function is all that matters. And that's at the North Pole. And then the South Pole is the amygdala, amygdala, which is the reptile brain, which is the total unthinking, total unthinking brain. And in our still puritanical American culture, that's <laughs> the polarity of right and wrong. Everything right is, is what the executive, executive brain, excuse me, is about. And everything wrong is the amygdala. And we have to stop that. And that's another way to think about obesity. Um, and and our puritanical approach to obesity, which is bad food. Bad food is when you're not thinking about what you're eating. The amygdala, the reptile brain is, is what's telling you what to eat and is what's telling you to eat that bad food. Where the way the brain is built to work is that on an east-west polarity, that the right hemisphere is in the east. So you begin in the east in the right hemisphere, you go through the corpus callosum to the left, um, to spend time getting logic, language, and line, linearly, and then it goes back through the corpus callosum to the right. So it's a, it's a three, it's a three-star trip in a sense, um, because because there's the the prehension of the right hemisphere move west to the apprehension of the left hemisphere. Here's what we think. Here's what we're going to do. Here's why we're going to do it. And then the I don't know retrohension of the the very last part of the experience which is how did that feel how did that fit how, what did that do for me how do i feel because of it will i do that the next time how did that feel good how did that not feel good all of that's happening without ever ever thinking about it and and then it's stored in the right hemisphere so not only is the is the right hemisphere 
about what comes before, the right hemisphere is about what comes after, and how everything you did in between fit. Now, one of the things also that you say is that you said before, the right brain is really designed to be the leader, even though yes. it's it's the the silent type, it's still the leader. It, that's where all the creative thought, that's where the the um, religious experience and the uh, what, what's the word when you when you feel like good about religious things, um, the, di- the divine. Yeah, yeah. When you touch the divine and and, and sacred spaces and and probably yes. also like this communion with um, things larger than ourselves and the idea exactly. of you know. I I I think of it as the all. Yeah. Capital T, capital A. It's the all. It's the divine. It's the human. It's the animal. It's the prehistoric, the historic, the what's here now. It's it's everything. It's the big everything. But if but but I believe that the all is really a belief system. And fundamentally, it's a belief system in the right hemisphere. That truth is in the right hemisphere. Truth is what the right hemisphere is for. In fact, there have been in the last few days, I've been bumping into language um, uh, of all things, and I think I shared this with you. Mitt Romney hmm. made a comment about how we needed to rise above our grievances and we needed to rise above our petty differences. Well, rise above is a right hemisphere concept, a right hemisphere construct. It's the left hemisphere that doesn't want us to rise above. In fact, it's grasping. If you think about Scrooge and, and everything that Charles Dickens wrote about how graspy Scrooge was, that's the left hemisphere. No, stay right here. You have to get a number. So rise above. Opening your mind is a right hemisphere construct. Anything that puts you in touch with the infinite, uh, that puts you in touch with the divine and the sacred is right hemisphere. And, and it's what we're trying to get rid of culturally where we've become an economy instead of a society. And that was the other that was the other big link that I made back to 1980 obesity and income inequality is uh oh train left the station. What train? The, tr- the where I was going on this train. Oh, here you have your I'll, I'll read it right here. It, it, this oh. is from what you sent. I had a hypothesis that we had become an economy instead of a society. And as such, had to access our identity through outsourced experiences that became a way to define ourselves so vitally necessary. Some of those outsourcers are as discreet as the tiny white threads leading to earbuds. Others, like food in its endless permutations, have been perfected to manifest very specific feelings. The lived experience of, quote, eating, the sequential release of metasensory feelings that become our feelings and a most trusted accomplice. the obesity epidemic and income equality have the same birth date, 1980. These are coincident and not accidentally aligned. So that's what you wrote. That's where you were going with your train? <laughs> exactly so. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Nothing like having my words at the ready. Thank you for that. That's the only page that I printed out. So don't, don't. <laughs> oh, that's funny. The meat of the matter. The meat of the matter. Yeah. Um, what I was going to say is that the left brain in societally now, the left brain is sort of, ha- it's, it's undergone a coup. There's been a coup. There's been a January the 6th in our, in our collective brains, but it succeeded to some degree. And now yes. the left brain is in that leadership role and it is yeah. ill-suited for the leadership role. And a lot of the 
the problems that we're having societally stem from that. That's also, as I understand it, part of your hypothesis. Yes. In fact, for a long time, I walked around with a working title in my head of the silent coup. But of course, it's not silent. It's the left hemisphere that's that's pulling off the coup in its very noisy, clattery approach. Um, and anytime you, you try to rise above, it pulls you right back. Because like, no, here is where you must be. But it absolutely is a coup and it's a perfect parallel. In fact, it makes me want to cry. Yeah, I know. It's 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 powerful stuff. Does Trump even have a right hemisphere in his brain? Do you think it's like- Oh, no. No, in fact, the, the, the clue, the clue about the dominance of the left hemisphere governing the culture is authoritarianism. Yes. Because the, the unique gift of the United States has been to be constitutionally designed to work with the way the brain works. People come first, right hemisphere comes first, there are all these left hemisphere systems that we use to keep everything working, but the checks and balance in the end are, how did that work for us? How did that work for people? And the constitution itself is designed to keep the left hemisphere in check, except we've been sloppy about that. And we've been thinking, well, it's, it's like people keep saying Hillary was right, Hillary was right. Yes, Hillary was right, but the forum that she was in for saying what she was saying was wrong. It should have been Obama saying that. It should have been Obama telling us these truths. Leaving it in the po political forum was too much marketing. It wasn't about truth. The politics had become marketing. And so, so we lost the truth because in, well, you know, that whole election, but <laughs> but we lost the truth and the and the sign of left hemisphere running away with government is authoritarianism. I mean, it's Mitch McConnell swearing he would never let Obama have a second term. And and LB said it the other day, the coup is the court. Yeah. And um, yeah, no, it's it's all of those things. Wait, go, go back a second. When you say Obama should have said those things instead of Hillary because he was the president already. Is that what you mean? Well, because he was not in a marketing role. Oh, okay. Hillary was in a marketing role. Right, she was campaigning. Okay, I get it. She was campaigning. Okay. It should not have been a subject for politics. It should have been a subject for the truth teller. Right. And, and we are now completely cynified, cynical about politics because it hasn't been about truth for a long time. It's been about marketing. Okay. Yeah, no, that's, it's true. It's the slogans and it's, you know, and they're bullshit. Nine, especially the GOP slogans are complete bullshit. They're just not anything. Uh, right. You know, but that's, um, you know, that's where we're at. Now, the left brain being authoritarian, I mean, another thing that, that LB, you know, my friend Lincoln's Bible has said numerous times is that they're artless. These people are artless. There's an artlessness to them. Oh, yes. Even the, and you can see it like when it breaks down which musicians support, you know, <laughs> the, the good guys and then which ones don't. And it's like they have yeah. like Kid Rock and Ted Nugent. And that's really it. Like yes. Maybe a, a couple of these country singers that I don't know who they are. But, you know, that the, the disparity is vast when you see, yes. um, you know, who supports them and who doesn't. It's artless in the way, in the way Trump walks. <laughs> The way Trump walked, artless. Yeah. His, 
his his being is artless. Yeah. And yes, there is meant to be no art because art, what's the value proposition of art? Yeah, no, unless you're, you know, creating an NTF and you have some Russian bankrolling it for you, no, there's nothing, you know. Yeah. Art for art's sake is is the thing to do. And if you get lucky, maybe somebody will buy it. But yeah. Yeah. Monetizing paintings from Van Gogh and stuff like that. That doesn't count. That's not art. That's commerce of the worst right. kind, really. Um, and then you might ask like, oh, but what about religion? Like the, these MAGA people, they're religious. They're Christians and they're this and that. And I would argue that, okay, yeah, they claim to be Christians and religious, but really a lot of what those religious systems consist of is that they must obey and right. that's it you know stop thinking i mean i was raised catholic and there's a lot of that certainly in the catholic church for years and years like you're not allowed to think just this is what you believe and and just trust that we know what we're doing um that's not that's not right brain that's left brain you know right brain is the passion it's you know, religion the, as a system yeah organized religion is left brain religion exactly. itself the religious experience yeah, uh, I can't think of the word. There's a word that I'm trying to say. The ecstasy. That's the word I'm looking. At. The religious ecstasy. Yes, is pure right brain, and that's a that's a feeling that I I think a lot of people just don't have, you know, anymore if they ever do. Well, and evangelicals are also authoritarian. Yeah, it's it's whatever this guy tells me is what's true. Yeah, and and they've been increasing their bandwidth so that they transcend the the concerns of the home and family to now think about politics and what you should think about world yeah and uh you know and that's the, the hypocrisy that comes out of these people i mean there's so much hypocrisy that comes out of these organized religions i don't think it's any accident that there's abuses of power there's obviously all the the, the uh sexual assault problems that the church has had and some of these other you know big systems have had and that's, I think that's all left brain stuff too, you know? Yes. It doesn't have anything to do with religious ecstasy, you know, the real sacredness right. and the, the, you know, seeing right. the face of God kind of. Uh, so yeah, it's artlessness and it's, it's systems based. And now the, the left brain, our collective left brain has, has run amok. Um, I mean, I'm, social media seems to also fuel this. Do you, do you think that's true? Oh, no, I think you're totally true. And that's part of the unmaking of the Western world. I mean, you it extends into every aspect of life, including and especially education, that we, uh, another right hemisphere uh, investment that we made as a country was education and public education, so that everyone had everyone had the chance to be the most themselves that they could possibly be. And now we're undoing that. We're, un, we're unmaking the system of education that allowed for human growth and fulfillment of human potential, the identification and, and fulfillment of human potential. Yeah, no, I do. there's no question that the education system is, I mean, just the, the reading, I think that the kids do, they read but they read different things. They don't read novels anymore. Like I certainly, I had to, you know, it, yeah. just, it just isn't a thing. Um, I wanted to read you. I wrote this essay a, a while ago, years ago, before Trump and everything. And in the essay, I was talking about, it's called the, um, A Study of Reading Habits in the Age of Aquarius. So I was talking about, you know, that whole thing where the age of Pisces is coming to an end and the age of Aquarius is starting. This is the sort of 
it's not even a mystical thing. It really is the wobble of the earth. That's what an astrological age is. So it's not just woo-woo uh, Mary right. and Williams and stuff, right? But there did, did seem to be this sense that the age of Pisces was coming to an end and the age of Aquarius was starting. And my argument was that the age of Aquarius began when Facebook began, right? Uh, because that really signified a new thing. Uh, so I wanted to read you this. There's a, a, a famous astrologer named Ro, uh, Robert Hands who wrote a book called Horoscope Symbols. Uh, and this is what he wrote. He said, if the coming age is really Aquarian, it may be an era in which individual consideration, emotional ties of love, and bonds of tradition are ruthlessly rooted out in favor of various utopian orders that are conceived entirely in the head and not at all in the heart, which is, he may as well be saying, entirely in, in the left brain and not at all in the right brain. That's what he means. Yes, absolutely. Aquarius is the sign of the individual as a cooperative unit of the group. Aquarians tend to have strong social ideas about who people ought to be, but they do not relate easily to individual people, except perhaps insofar as they embody social issues. Aquarius is the sign of the humanitarian who loves all mankind, but no individual human being. Aquarians are more at home with friendship than with love. And God, it was published in 1981, which means he probably wrote it also in 1980. So there. Yes. <laughs> anyway, I wanted you, yeah. once I read your book, I wanted to, I wanted you to read you that because I just think it's, it's just kind of a mind blow that it's not age of Aquarius ain't from hair, you know, at least according to him. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. In the seventies, there also was um, the language of right brain, left brain. And so everybody always wants to go, oh, I know all about that because it's kind of like hippy dippy stuff. Right. But, but, it, but it's the right hemisphere and left hemisphere discussion that we're having is, is kind of the human neural science of the brain. And we're not, we're not right-brained or left-brained in the way that we're right-handed or left-handed. That's, that's just a, um, a predilection to use one side of your body differently from the other side of your body. But, you're, but, the, but the system of the brain is so big that you can never have half of it shut down. All of it is doing all of it all the time. The right, if something hits the right hemisphere, goes to the left hemisphere, goes to the right hemisphere, start all over again. It's happening millions of times a second. And I was lucky enough to be in a position where I was given the opportunity to help people isolate moments in time. And already starting in the 1990s, I was talking about moments in time and motivations at moments in time, which was not the preferred language as I shared it with people. There were better ways of talking about it. But it's something that's happening all the time. And I was just lucky enough to learn where does behavior start. And so when we're talking about the, the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere, we're talking about two aspects of the hemispheres, two aspects of the two hemispheres that are always working at the speed of the brain, which is a phenomenal thing. I mean, there are said to be as many neurons in the, in the brain as there are in all of the galaxies. I mean, to, to think we understand the brain is kind of crazy because we're, we're toddlers. Yeah. We're toddlers hooking up batteries. You know, it's like, when you would stick a cord from a potato to a potato. That's kind of the stage of the science. <laughs> the left brain thinks we know all about it. The right brain knows we do not. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. It's like the Oppenheimer line. He said, uh, I think it was him. He said, the, uh, 
The optimist thinks that this is the best of all possible worlds and the pessimist knows it. Isn't that great? <laughs> yes. Oh, that's wonderful. So do you think the brain is like evolving now? Do you think we as a species are evolving into being less right brain, more left brain? Or do you think this is just a weird blip and a product of the times? Like, where do you think it's going? Yeah, I, I hope it's a blip. Um, I fear it is not a blip. The triad of logic, language, and linearity put together with money and algorithms pretty much has us in the bag. And um, money and algorithms seal the deal. They can prove that they can prove what's right. They can prove what's wrong because it's all money. Yeah. They can prove what's right. They can prove what's wrong because it's all numbers. And and so it's becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, what's interesting is that money is a faith-based money itself. Currency is very much a right brain thing because it doesn't exist. It requires imagination and collective whatever to believe in its power to begin with, right? Yeah. So the left yeah. brain is elevating this thing, which is purely at its core, a very right brain concept. At least I think that's how I, I'm reading. Well, I, I, would, I would say that with, with the advent of our reliance, our full abdication to technology, um, that there's there's no belief about it because it's a number and numbers are real. Yeah. And somewhere in here, there's a conversation to be had about NFTs and that's talk about not being real. Right. Except I can't have that conversation. I have, I've just said the one sentence I could probably say about NFTs, but I think NFTs fulfill what you're saying that yeah. there's a, but the, but the problem is that, that trying to convert them, I mean, converting them into numbers and pretending them they're real doesn't make them real. Yeah. So there's a fundamental instability. For anyone who doesn't know, listening, an NFT, NFT stands for non-fungible token. And it's like this, I, that's as, about as far as I can get. It's like a thing that you buy that's virtual, but there's only one of it. So uh, <laughs> Jack Dorsey sold an NFT of like his first tweet or the first ever tweet on Twitter. And some <laughs> idiot paid like millions of dollars for it. And then I think he sold it on eBay for like $24.75 or something. Like he, <laughs> it did not retain its value because, you know, like these things are fucking dumb, I think. But, you know, right. if, if you buy a painting, if you buy a Picasso or a Van Gogh or something like that, you're getting something. You have the painting. And there's yeah. only so many of them. And it's a real thing that a real artist created. But NFT, I don't know what that. You know, well, and, and the the fun, the funniest one that I heard about that is selling selling the receipt of having purchased the Mona Lisa. <laughs> you have a receipt that says you own it. Do you not own it? You own yeah. the receipt. Right. <laughs> None of it makes any. No, <laughs> no, it doesn't. So, OK, your book is it's not done. Right. There's, there's where are you headed with it? What's how would you conclude it? Like, are you going to offer ways to get get around this or to take back the right brain or or, or is it are you just pointing it out and 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 uh you know wh what's your overarching i guess concluding thought in your hypothesis does that make sense yeah yes i wish i had a better answer the um <laughs> because of course that is that is the expected next step tell us how to fix it yeah um and and I feel the same that I feel about planting because we're, we're making the world we know go away without noticing. So my first job is to get everybody to notice. 
here's and it's hard to notice because this is the liquid every moment of our life how am i going to notice that without without stopping so i'm trying to be the cat i'm trying to be the uk cadbury chocolate slow down and look at this in a world of of us chocolate which is hurry up this is chocolate i want to eat it big hit right now let's go yeah. So the um, and it's it's generous of you to call it a book because of course ninety percent of it is still in my head. Yeah. And and what you have given me is a way to to increase how to think about it, which I appreciate. Good. Okay. That's what I was hoping for. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes. And the um, so so the first thing the plane is in a free fall and no one knows. So I feel I've been sick for ten years. My obsession about this has gotten me through. And because I'm, I'm, I'm yelling into the abyss and I would like to change that so that we can at least have the conversation about what, what to do next. The whole notion of mind opening and rise above, all of those right hemisphere tricks are, are the key to a future that we understand as Americans. Because our, our country has been uniquely designed the way the brain works, and we're corrupting it. We're corrupting it with authoritarianism. We're corrupting it with marketing that's supposed to be politics. And, and we're corrupting it in all sorts of ways. I mean, even watching the hearings, uh, Benny Thompson always says, pursuant to you know, paragraph number 47, line number 83, I will, will proceed with no objections. Everything about the genius of the country is is that everything is baked into the Constitution and somehow everything's baked into a rule book somehow because the, the, the genius was to understand all the ways it could go wrong and keep it from going wrong. Yeah. And up until Trump, that has worked. And but now with with money metrics and technology, um, uh, Trump has Trump has hijacked the system so that other wannabe people, the DeSantis eye in the world, um, are finding this as their pathway of opportunity. Yeah, and we've now created an authoritarian lane, and and call it politics. Yeah, and the media seems not to be aware of this, or if they are aware of it, is terrified to say so. And by the time they get around to it, it will be too late. Did you did you ever see the newsroom? Oh yeah, yeah, good show. Aaron Sorkin's The Newsroom. He, do you know anything about the, um, how he stopped doing that series sooner than expected? No. Why did he stop it? They, they only did three seasons. They did one season the way he wanted it to be done. He, just before the second season was about to air, he threw it all in the trash and said, this, this isn't going to work. And then the third season was, let's wrap this up and get out of here. I think what was happening, he has said, and I've, I've done research on this. He has said that it was the only time he's had the yips. Hmm. And I think it's because he was too close to it. I think he, he was doing it based on all his friends in newsrooms who were yeah. telling him what was actually happening. And, and the one thing the right hemisphere needs is necessary distance. You can't be too close to something and get it right. But he was too close to it. I mean that first that first season cut to the core because it was true. Yeah. But it was too true that he couldn't write it. So he needed space. He needed white space as it were. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. 
and and it was um and so the business the business that he was in was also not would also have been not positively reinforcing this abject depiction of the truth yeah and and news itself has gone through its 1980 version news itself is no longer journalism it's it's the marketing of what happens to be happening today yeah yeah and so so we've so we've lost the role of news in the government as well the fourth estate is now gone yeah i mean pretty for all intents and purposes i mean and that it's complicated because there are a lot of good journalists doing good work but the people certainly the the, the head editors and the, the op-ed writers mostly and the people that make the decisions and certainly the publishers are all seemingly in the bag and yes, ready to well, just be, be Pravda, you know? They just right. can't wait. I mean, they're not seemingly in the bag. I think they are in the bag and they are in the bag because they're responsible to the profit engine. Yeah. They're, you might say that nothing is sacred, but profit is sacred. And so money and profit are, are the deity of the left hemisphere. And that has changed fundamentally news. And the, and the democracy needs the news as it was built. Yeah. Yeah. No, it does. And, and it's, uh, yeah, business is business and business must grow, as Dr. Seuss said. Right? Right. Right. Yeah. So oh, the God. No, the media is <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. yelling into the abyss. Yes, that's the, the, the this show is all about people who are yellers into the abyss. That's, that's the theme here. So and um, I, and I appreciate that. <laughs> but, but we're not really yelling. We're really trying to be to, to articulate the madness um, of, of this time that we're living in, which is just the farther it goes along, the more I can't believe that we're at the state where I mean, my brain right. is I can feel my brain um, flaying, you know, like I yeah. feel I, it's hard to explain, but I feel like the, the I'm constantly on uh, um, using up too much of my not even bandwidth operating power, you know? Yes. <laughs> yes. Your, your fundamental energy. Yeah. Yeah. So which is what makes it important to, you know, to have that space when you were talking about the spaces. I, mean, I really when I travel, I never turn the TV on. I like quiet, you know, because there's when you're at work or you're home, the kids are around or there's just, there's not enough quiet. And I feel like I really, my, my, my soul needs it. My soul needs quiet. And, and, um, yeah. you know, the right brain needs quiet. That's, that's, it right. does. Literally. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, not, not just, um, actual quiet, uh, audio quiet, but, but mental quiet, yes. you know, the, spiritual the, the, quiet, spiritual quiet. Yeah, exactly. Well put. Um, okay, so wait, what, what's the title for this book? What is it? What did you? What it, before it was called something else, but you've you've come up with a title. So what is it? Now? Right now, the working title is the big why. The big why. Because the, my point of all of this has been to get to the beginning of it and find out why this is happening. Yeah. And because without finding out why it's happening, no one's going to get to the next step of what do we need to do to make it better or keep it, keep ourselves from going off the flaming edge. But the, but one of the working titles had been the, the silent coup or the half brain coup, the half -brain which of course coup. is too. Yeah, that's good too. These are all good titles. Um, are you on Twitter? I am on Twitter. Oh God. What's your, what's your Twitter handle? Partisan Pam. Okay. <laughs> well, it will get you to, you'll see it says at Ann Campbell 111. 
which for that, you have to go back and talk to my therapist. Okay. <laughs> I, I, we, we, we won't go there. We, I, I never, you know, people have, have, it depends on when you, when you signed up on Twitter and this and that I'll put right. it in the show notes. I hope you keep working on this book because I think there's a lot of really interesting ideas. And I think you've had a really interesting career that, you know, is the sort of thing that drives so much of, of the world that we live in, but it's a world I think people don't know about what you're doing. So I think that's all right. really interesting too. Um, Pam Murtaugh, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me today. This was great. Can I ask you a favor? Of course. Can you, if you could write down the 10 things, just 10 words, I, I'm asking you to use your left hemisphere so I don't scare you right hemisphere. Okay. 10, thing, 10 things you think the book is about. That would help me. Okay. Can I, do you want me to do it right now or do you want me to? No, no. Oh, okay, no. okay. No. <laughs> No, no, no. When you can. Okay. When you can. Yeah. And if you can only do five, that's fine with me. Okay. Well, let me make my, let me write myself a note because I'll, it'll float things. The book is. All right. So you're on Twitter. It's Partisan Pam. Pam Murtaugh. Thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Hey, thank you. This has been great. I appreciate you all the way around. <laughs> thank you. Thanks again to Pam Murtaugh. Great conversation. Really enjoyed it. Now, as promised, I have a treat for you, or what I hope is a treat. Some time ago, in the late 90s, around the year 2000, I decided to rewrite the lyrics to Cole Porter's song, You're the Top. Now, anybody that's been listening to the show for a while knows that I'm a big fan of song parody. And in fact, really all I ever wanted to be in my entire life was Weird Al since like fifth grade. And so I want to thank you guys for encouraging and indulging my crazy, um, <laughs> my crazy ambitions. I decided to record this for you and uh, share it because you know what? You, my listeners, are the top. You are. I'm, I'm very grateful to you and let this song be an expression of my gratitude as it leads you into what I hope is a super fun rest of the summer. I should say, again, it was written in the late 90s around 2000. So, you know, some of the references are old. Specifically, it was right after Jerry Maguire came out and Cuba Gooden Jr. was talking about the qualm, meaning that, I guess that right brain kind of concept, right? So uh, you have to be familiar with that. And in 19, 1999, 2000 you would have been so anyway without further ado here's my silly song have a great summer everybody words poetic are so pathetic and often so cliche that i prefer a different way for me to say hey you're okay takes a lot of mow it to make me a poet and i don't like to drink but old Cole Porter is made to order. He'll help me tell you just what I think. You're the top. You're Winona Ryder. You're the top. You're woodpecker cider. You're the grapes that grow round the old chateau in France. You're a Prada bag. You're the checkered flag. You're parachute pants. You're a star. You're a gold tiara, you're no mar. Garshapara, I'm the blurry half of a photograph you'd crop. 
But if baby, I'm the bottom, you're the top. You're the top. You're a testarossa. You're the top. You're a sweet mimosa. Sip by the bar on the shores of Martinique. You're a ball of tricks. You're a 56 game hitting streak. You're a 10. You're a Jedi master. You're a fen. Stratocaster. I'm a sordid name you'd be ashamed to drop. But if baby I'm the bottom, you're the top. You're the top. You're Clinique Mascara. You're the tippy top. You're Milan Condera. You're sunken treasure found on a pleasure cruise. You're the holodeck, you're Toulouse Lautrec, you're under ruse. You're the Quan, you're the latest lingo. You are John, Paul, George, and Ringo. I'm a sticky spot, the maid forgot to mop. But if baby, I'm the bottom, you're the top. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fassa. Sofia Tereshenko provided the Russian introduction. Voice talent is provided by Tally Briggs, Sigmund Della, Stephanie St. John, Brett Petticord, Ryan Byrne at History Falls Apart, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kanai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail website with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the site and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. Until next time, we shall prevail. MSW Media.